Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin reading at verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 39, and then focus our attention on verses 24 and 25. So, Hebrews 10, verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly whilst ye were made a grazing, a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourself that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So far we read God's holy and inspired word. Now verses 24 and 25. Not forsaking, no, verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another 
and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. As the name of this letter suggests, this was written early on in the history of the Christian church when the church was primarily Jewish or composed of Hebrew members. And it was occasioned by the fact that many Jewish or Hebrew converts were considering forsaking the Christian faith to return to Judaism. That was due to several factors. First of all, their fellow countrymen, by and large, had rejected the gospel. There was only a small remnant of those of the Jewish nation that turned to know Christ. And secondly, their fellow countrymen and their unbelief opposed them, persecuted them. And then there was this. They anticipated a very soon return of Christ. And He didn't come. And He didn't come. And they were discouraged. And they were about to return back to Judaism. The theme of this book is what you have in the Christian faith in Jesus Christ is far superior to what you could ever have in Judaism. What you have in Judaism is the old covenant under Moses that only look forward to what you have now in Christ and the new covenant. Don't abandon the better for that which is less if you abandon the new covenant. To go back to the old, you do so to the peril of your own soul. And so there is a plea in the verses we read. Hold fast to your faith. In fact, that's verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For He is faithful that promised. And then we have our text. And let us consider, so that we may hold fast our profession, let us consider one another to provoke unto faith, to love, and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. If you forsake the assembling of the saints, you can't provoke unto love and good works. Don't don't forsake the assembling of the saints together. And this is urgent because so more as you see the day approaching. That's the day of judgment. The day of judgment is approaching. A day where we want to stand before the Lord in love and good works. Provoke one another unto that. Don't neglect the gathering together. Seek the fellowship of the saints so that you may exhort one another. The day is approaching. Now that applies to us too, doesn't it? The day of the Lord is approaching. We too must provoke one another and exhort one another to love and good work. Not, assembly, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. 
I call your attention to this passage under the theme, Provoking One Another to Love and Good Works. What, what this means, that's the first point. How is this possible? Or I could even say, what, what is required? You, you can't neglect the gathering together of the saints. You, you can't do that if you're going to provoke one another to love and to good works. And why is this urgent? Don't you see the day of the Lord is coming? It's approaching. The Word of God here speaks of love and good works. The word good here is significant. In the Old Testament, the word good, there's two different words for good, and they're both applied to works. The one word, good, agathos, refers to that which is good because it's perfect. God is good. He is perfection. The implication of all that's perfection. In His law, He has revealed that goodness. And that which complies to the law is a good work. Reflects the goodness of God. But then there's another word that is translated good, which means good in the sense that it's beneficial and useful. For example, you have a trade, a builder's trade or whatever, and you have this tool. You say, that's a good tool. That is a handy tool. I've used that so much. It's a good tool. That's the idea. What we have here in this passage is that latter word. Works that are useful. Works that are beneficial. Beneficial for the cause of God and His covenant. Useful for the well-being of the neighbor. Now understand, to be useful, a work must also be good in the other sense, complying to the law of God. Those works of us or anyone that are contrary to the law of God are detrimental to the cause of the church, detrimental to the cause of the covenant, detrimental to our neighbor. Only those works that comply with the goodness of God's law are useful. And that's because a work is useful only when God's blessing is upon it and makes it useful and beneficial. And His blessing is only upon those works which are good in the sense of complying with the goodness of His law. If you will know these good works, what they are, let's look at God's law that forbids certain things, but by implication also lays before us the positive requirements of our lives as those commandments are explained through all of Scripture. Let's start with the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. You take God's name in vain with cursing and swearing and loose language. That's not going to have God's blessing. You're not going to be building up anything. You're going to be tearing everything down in your family, your marriage, your church. The positive implication here is confess God's name. Confess it to your children. Confess it in the church. 
Confess it to those who are sick or dying. Confess the great name of God, explaining and setting forth His greatness and His good works. That God will bless. It will be a great blessing in your home, a great blessing in the church, a great blessing in the Christian school, a great blessing to those who are suffering. Confess His name. And then, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't forget the Sabbath day. Remember it. To keep it as a special day. To come to the house of God. To use it for spiritual things. You neglect the Sabbath day and treat it like any other day, you're doing no one any good. You're not doing the church any good. You're not doing your family any good. You're not doing your marriage any good. But God blesses the keeping of the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. As the Catechism explains, that means honor and submit to all God-ordained authority. That has God's blessing. To honor authority in marriage as the blessing of God upon that marriage, and to honor authority in the home as a great blessing upon the family and in the church. Thou shalt not kill. That commandment doesn't just mean take someone else's life, does it? It means being filled with hatred and envy, hurting, in one way or another, through gossip or whatever way, the neighbor because of revenge. That doesn't help anybody. That just tears marriage apart and the family, the home, the church. The positive implication of that commandment is love your neighbor and use everything in your power for the well-being of your neighbor. That God uses to build up his church and the home and marriage. Just try one more, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. How that destroys marriage, adultery, and the home. We see that in our own country, don't we? Adultery prevails. Marriages are falling apart. Divorce and remarriage is commonplace. And it's becoming almost universal that instead of marrying a man and a woman will simply live together. That doesn't build up anything. That's not helpful for the church. The positive implication is maintain marriage. Be faithful in marriage. God blesses that. That is very useful. And on we could go to all the commandments. This passage speaks in that connection of good works, also of love. Provoke one another to love and good works. Love and good works are inseparably connected. Good works arise out of love and are the expression of love. Where there's no love, there's no good works. Nothing that's beneficial. There may be outward morality, 
but just outward morality does not have the great blessing of God. Isn't it true that love is the great commandment of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Only those works that arise out of that love are good. They're good in the sight of God. And they're also then come with His blessing and are very beneficial. Love. Too often in the church, there have been works that are outwardly performed to the letter of the law, but not out of love for God or for the neighbor. An obvious example are the Pharisees. They didn't know love. They had all the laws of God in addition to the Ten Commandments of the laws of the civil and the ceremonial laws, they had them all listed from the top to the bottom of importance. And they always argued, which is the great of the commandment of God? And they asked Jesus once, well, what is the great commandment? They wanted to get him involved and embroiled in a conversation and in an argument they could discredit him. And, and he mentioned something I don't think they had on that list. This is the great commandment you must love. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. Those works that do not come out of love are useless in the cause of God. They're useless in the well-being and edifying of the church. In fact, they're often detrimental those who do not love but have the morality, outward morality of the law are doing that for self-serving purposes. They're self-serving. And so they often, as the Pharisees did, used the law, letter of the law to manipulate and to tear down and to rob widows of their houses and to build their own reputation and power without love. There's no good works. Well, we are told we are to consider one another. Here. To provoke unto love and good works. We are to consider one another. That word is very interesting. It means to fix your eye or your mind on something to consider it, to give it your attention. And that's what we are to do in the church. We are to keep an eye on each other. We are to have one another in mind. Now we must be warned here against busy, being busybodies in other men's matters, poking our nose into others' affairs for the sake of idle curiosity, or simply to find fault, and that'll lead to the terrible sin of gossip. Don't. That's not what we have here. Paul had to rebuke those in the early church for doing that. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 11, For we hear 
that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. They're busy in everybody else's affairs, poking their nose in everybody else's business. 1 Timothy 3, 5, verse 13. Paul, Timothy was uh, the minister at the church of Ephesus at this time. And Paul speaks of some of the trouble that he has faced. And withal they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. Now don't do that. To consider one another is not that. We are to consider one another, have our eye out for one another, for this purpose, to provoke one another, to love and good works. That's it. To provoke means to stimulate, to spur on, to urge. Now you understand that as fellow believers in Jesus Christ, we have the gift of love and good works from God our Father. That's the fruit of the work of salvation. We've been born again. Out of that new birth comes faith. That's part of the salvation Christ has secured for us on the cross. But you understand the love and the good works that come out of that new birth and that come out of true faith aren't always present in our lives as they ought to be and as they could be, are they? Again, we have to look to our sinful nature, which we inherited from Adam. The work of grace to renew us in Christ is only begun. It's far from finished, and it won't be finished until one day we're in glory. And that sinful nature often has too much influence in our thoughts and desires in our lives. We can easily let that happen. We're warned against that in Scripture. Put off the old man like a dirty, rotten, worthless garment. Put on the new man in Christ. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Put him to death. It's a constant battle, and the devil knows how to appeal to our sinful nature so that it often controls way too much of our lives. It so easily happens, and so we are to pay close attention to each other that we may provoke, stimulate each other, spur each other on to love and good works. In that connection, our passage also speaks of exhorting. Don't forsake the assembling of yourself together as the manner of some said this is, but exhorting one another. This provoking, spurring on involves exhorting. Now that word translated to exhort means to stand at one side as a helper. Either by encouragement or instruction or warning or rebuke. However, but to stand at the side of another to help.
Well, that's what we're supposed to do. We are to come alongside of each other with a view to helping, especially if we see a fellow saint, maybe a family member, slipping, backsliding, to encourage, to instruct, to warn, to rebuke. And that's what the Lord uses. He certainly does. To bring us back to where we should be and must be. A life devoted to love and to good works. Now that brings us to the second point. The possibility or the requirement If we will consider one another to provoke and exhort to love and good works, we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. This passage speaks of the assembling together of the saints. To what does that refer? Well, that refers first of all and primarily to the worship service on the Lord's Day. That's what we're doing tonight. That's what we did this morning. We are assembling ourselves together. And we, in this day and age, with transportation, have the opportunity to be here twice. I remember when I went to Singapore the first time, 1978, with Dewey Inglesma, Prof. Inglesma's father. They could only get together once, young people. Sometimes it took an hour to get there, an hour to get back on public transportation. And they had to sneak away from home because their parents were pagan and didn't want them to be there. And when they came back, they were in trouble. They met once a day. But boy, that was a meeting. We, in our day and age, easily can worship and gather together twice on this Lord's Day. But there's more. There are other occasions in which the saints can gather for spiritual fellowship. In the early church, there was a daily agape feast, a love feast, where they came together to eat. And those who had much brought more than they needed for those who were poor. And they had fellowship with each other. And they even celebrated the Lord's Supper together, but that ran into abuse, so that was discontinued, at least in the church of Corinth. But, although we do not have the daily love feasts, we are, have many occasions where we can gather together as saints for fellowship, to provoke one another, to exhort one another. Obvious are our Bible study groups. Young peoples, young adults, we have an adult Bible study. The women have their Wednesday morning Bible study. We have a uh, community Bible study. What a beautiful opportunity to come together, to exhort one another, to learn, to encourage, to instruct one another. Then there are programs. Our schools have programs 
where not only do our children and young people sing to the glory of God and to our edification, but we have an opportunity, a golden opportunity to meet with one another, to fellowship with one another. And we have that in the church too, our Sunday school programs, our request nights, even such things as picnics, school picnic, the church picnic. What a golden opportunity to be together in the fellowship of the saints. And then there are many, many committees that have to be filled in the church to do the work of the church. Look in your church directory. Go down the list. Your name could be there on one of those committees to work together with others. Don't neglect, don't forsake these assembling of ourselves together. Forsake not these assembling of the saints together. To forsake here means to leave behind, to abandon. So the idea is don't turn your back on this. Don't leave it behind. Don't abandon the assembling of yourselves together. We can apply that first of all to the worship on the Sabbath day. Don't neglect, don't forsake the assembling of the saints together on the Sabbath day so that you're absent from the house of God with no, no valid reason. Don't do that. You're needed here. Don't avoid coming to the gatherings of the church when the saints gather for communion and fellowship in Bible studies or even informally. A lot of us, when I came to First Church in 1995, many of the members of the church didn't fellowship with each other socially. They did this, this person, this family outside the church. Now we're gathering, we have a gathering here on informally of families and couples getting together is beautiful. Don't just turn your back on that. Don't turn your back on that. Don't pull back from the gathering together on this, uh, in these other activities so that the only time we see you and the only time you're with us is here on the Lord's Day. Don't let that happen. Now, I understand that, of course, we all have obligations. You know, when you have a single uh, a, a widow or a widower, you often find them in every event. They look forward to it because they're alone. Well, if you've got a family, you can't do that. And if you're on consistory of the school board, you can't be at everything. You can't. But as much as possible, we must be involved 
and the gathering together of God's people. Now, the passage here says, as the manner of some are, they forsook the assemblies. That was true in the Old Testament, in the early Christian church, and there were a number of reasons. First of all, and primarily, they were being persecuted. They were being ostracized by their own families. You have forsaken the temple? You, you, you are going to this Christian community, a church, this, this thing called the way? And they were abandoned by their families. That was hard. And then there was the loss of their first love. Oh, when they came to Christ, they were filled with love and an adoration. And the Lord in his first letter to the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, talks about a church in Ephesus that lost its first love. That zeal had, had departed. And sometimes it's because they became entangled in the affairs of the world. And sometimes it was because of resentment of things that had happened in the church. And the same thing happens today. No, we're not persecuted. No, generally we're not going to be ostracized by our families for coming here. But we can easily become entangled in the affairs of the world. And we can easily be resentful because this person did that or the church didn't do this. Let us not forsake the assembling together of the saints. Let us be involved in the church and the life of the church as much as possible, not only for our own benefit, but also so that we may provoke one another and exhort one another unto love and good work. This brings us to the third point. This is going to be a short sermon. Do you know that? No one ever criticized me for this. The urgency. Here is the passage. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works so much the more as ye see the day approaching. The day here is the great day of judgment that will bring an end to this present age, an end to this physical universe. Jesus is coming again. He left us at his exaltation. At least he left us bodily. He's with us in the spirit. He's with us in His majesty and power. But He is bodily in heaven at the right hand of God. He's coming again visibly to judge all men and all angels, living and dead of the human race. And for the church, that will be a great day of salvation. What a wonderful day. All that is of sin, all the world, would put away a new creation. What a great day of salvation. But for the unbelieving world, a day of ultimate disaster. And the Word of God says, we see this day approaching. It's drawing near. 
the perspective of the Bible is that the return of Christ is the next great work of salvation on the clock of history. You can go back to the Old Testament and see many great works of salvation or many hours. The first one was short. The creation of the universe, Adam and Eve, in paradise, perfect. They fell. But then there was the mother promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Then there was another decline and a great day of salvation in the flood where God saved the church that numbered only eight souls, saved them by water in in, in the ark. And on and on we could go. Works of salvation, deliverance out of Egypt. After 400 years of the judges, a king after God's own heart, David and Solomon and the greatness of that kingdom. And then Christ came. And he established the salvation of the church through his suffering and death on the cross. What a great work of salvation. And now he's in heaven. There's one more great day of salvation. And that is the day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead and complete his work of salvation. And that's why the Bible says this is the last hour of history. We're on the last hour of the, of the clock of history. <clears throat> and we see that day approaching. Jesus said, there'll be signs of my coming that will remind you and tell you, I'm on the way back. The gospel will be preached throughout all the world. And then when that's done, then I'll be here. But there's more. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be catastrophes in natures, abounding wickedness, persecution for the church, apostasy in the church, and it will culminate in the day of the Antichrist, just before my return. And we see those things, don't we? Where has the gospel not been preached today? The last couple hundred years, it's reached what we call the third world country, which for, well, since the time of of Noah, have fallen into paganism. And wars and rumors of wars. And the destruction of war is becoming worse and worse. And catastrophes in nature. We're seeing that just recently with the warming of the ocean and hurricanes and floods, and drought as we've not seen them in our lifetime. Abounding wickedness. Those who are my age or thereabouts have seen in our time an abounding of wickedness. An abounding of wickedness that is staggering. We are not being persecuted, not harshly. We're not loved. 
and the toleration that the world has for us as the Church of Jesus Christ is growing thin. But we can see signs that our place is going to become smaller and smaller and smaller, even in this society. Yes, we can. And the anti-Christian kingdom, a kingdom of universal significance, one government headed by one man or a small oligarchy, where there's no room for the church, anti-Christian, that will supposedly solve all the problems of the world. You can see that develop. For the first time in history, that's a possibility with communication and travel and the problems that the human race face as we strive for more and more wealth. It can only be one solution, an anti-Christian government. We can see it develop. And when we see these things, we can say, the Lord's drawing near. You understand, Christ is using these things to make everything ready for His return. The gathering of the church so that the world will become ripe for judgment. Are you observing these things? We are to watch and pray. Don't just stick your head in the sand. Don't just ignore these things. We must be those who know what's going on. The Lord is coming. The day is fastly approaching. And as that day approaches more closer and closer, it will be increasingly different to stand and make ourselves and to maintain ourselves in love and good works. Young people, the temptations and the allurements of the world, which are just a mouse away from your on your computer bring you in a position we never knew as young people. It's much harder for you to maintain yourself in love and good works than it was for me and my generation. Temptation abounds. Wickedness abounds. If I look back when I was a teenager, yeah, we, we had a standard of living that far surpassed anything of the world, but today, our standard of living surpasses by far the standard we had in the 60s when I was a young person and the 50s. And again, how easily it is in a time of prosperity to become entangled with the things of this world, it's all there. And it's so alluring, and it's easily attained like never before. And what's going to happen when the world finally comes and says, look, we don't have any place for you. You're not going to have a job. You're not going to have a place if you continue on with this church of yours and your Christian schools away with you. As the day approaches, 
it is very important that we consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, that we may stand before the Lord in judgment, in love and good works, not as the basis for a reward. Everything we receive from the hand of the Lord is earned by Christ. Any reward we receive is a gift of grace, but God rewards every man according to his works. As the day approaches and we see it, let us be together to provoke one another, to exhort one another unto love and good works. Amen. Father in heaven, we're thankful for thy word. Thankful, O oh God, for the truth that we have here. And we see the importance. Lord, bring to us through this sermon and through this passage of thy word the importance of living in the close communion and fellowship of the saints. And grant, O oh God, that we hear this word. And living together in fellowship, we exhort one another and provoke one another unto love and to good works for the glory of thy name and the building up of our marriages and our homes and our church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.